Well, good morning, friends. Normally at this point in our service, I'd encourage you to keep your Bibles there with you. But what I'd actually like you to do this morning now is just to put them down for a moment and get up out of your seat and have a bit of a stretch. By my watch, we've been, yep, you at home and also those who are here in the auditorium, I pray that at home you're responding a little bit more than our friends here. By my watch, we've been sitting down now for about 40 minutes or so. And that's it. Try to touch the, yep, do the Merv Hughes impersonation. Brilliant. Fantastic. We know that our brains pay better attention when we have blood flowing right throughout our body. And so it's good, I think, to have a bit of a stretch before we come to God's word now. And having done that, we've had a couple of Merv Hughes impersonations here this morning, some good stretching. Pick up your Bible again as we come to God's word. Languishing. Languishing. You might have heard that word a fair bit over the last few months. It seems to be the new buzzword to describe how many of us are feeling in this COVID season. We're nearing the end of eight weeks of lockdown here in the Shoalhaven. And many of us are languishing. We're not flourishing, we're not excited, we're not loving life, but we're not bored either. We're just blah. We're languishing because we know there's more to life than this. We feel as though we're going around and around in circles. Or maybe that's just me walking the same paths every single day. We're in the middle of the journey and we long for the end. And so, we're languishing. It's interesting though, you know, that isn't a word that we find in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippian church, despite the circumstances in which he wrote being immensely more challenging than ours. You see, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter whilst literally in lockdown, under house arrest in Rome. The Apostle Paul wrote this epistle somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. You might recall, if you can remember back this far, to our series in the book of Acts where we read about the Apostle Paul's arrest and his appeal to Caesar and his journey to Rome. He wrote this epistle under house arrest in Rome, waiting to hear from the fearsome Emperor Nero whether he would live or die. But yet, despite the fact that he was separated from his colleagues in ministry, despite the fact he faced an uncertain future, he never uses the word languishing, nor even carries a sense of it here in this letter. No, we see another word reappear again and again. Another theme permeates every page of his letter. Joy. Joy. An enduring joy that triumphs even in isolation, even in suffering, even in conflict, even in exhaustion. And so, friends, that's the lens through which we're going to study the book of Philippians this term. How and in what 
does the Apostle Paul find joy in despite what were horrendously challenging circumstances? And in our first study in this series today, as we look at the first 11 verses of this epistle, we're going to see his joy come through even in isolation. Four things in our passage today that he and we can rejoice in despite our isolation. The first there in verse 5. He rejoices in his gospel partnership with the Philippians. He rejoices in his gospel partnership with the Philippians. I think I've shared this story with you before, but I started my working life for an accounting firm in Sydney. And in the firm, there were two kinds of people. There were regular employees like me and the partners. We employees worked for a salary each fortnight and we worked hard for the firm. But ultimately for us, it was just a job. If the firm went broke and ran out of money, well, we would just find another job. But for the partners, it was different. Each of them had paid a few million dollars to buy into the firm. They'd taken out loans and redrawn their mortgages to buy in. They had real skin in the game. For them, it, it wasn't just a, a shame if the firm lost a client. No, it was serious. It, it hit them in the hip pocket. They received the profits, but also shared in the losses of the business. They had real skin in the game. You know, being a partner is very different to being an employee or a volunteer. And I think it's significant that Paul uses this word, partnership, to describe his relationship with the Philippians. They were partners in the gospel. Now, unlike in an accounting firm where it would take decades to work your way up to being a partner, as Paul says in verse 5 here, you become a partner in the gospel the moment you give your life to Christ, the moment you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a partner in the gospel and you've got skin in the game. And as we see there at the end of verse 4 and verse 5, Paul's partnership in the gospel with the Philippians was a, was a real source of joy to him. He rejoiced in it. Now, most fundamentally, of course, Paul and the Philippians were partners in the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They had both received his grace and his favor. They were united together in one body. But there's also another sense in which they were partners in the gospel. Because they were also partners in proclaiming and spreading the gospel. Throughout this letter, we're going to see the many and varied ways that this happened. The Philippians prayed for Paul in his suffering. They suffered themselves for Christ. They sent a member of their own church community to care for Paul's needs. They financially provided for him, all in addition to their local ministry in Philippi. You see, they rolled up their sleeves and got busy together. Friends, true partnership in the gospel is laboring together. For Christ. True 
gospel partnership is gritty and it's costly, serving the Lord and each other together. And so despite his physical separation from them, Paul rejoiced in his gospel partnership with the Philippians. As, my brothers and sisters, can we today? Today, many in our service have mentioned the the real mourning that we're feeling, being physically absent from each other. But friends, we can rejoice that we are partners in the gospel, that we have committed our lives to Christ, that we are living under his rule now, and that we are seeking to serve him and make him known in the Shoalhaven. We can rejoice in our partnership in the gospel. And secondly, this is our second point this morning. Paul also found joy in the confidence that God would complete the work that he begun in them. We see this in verse 6. Isolated there and under house arrest, Paul rejoices that God remains at work. Verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I can be pretty awful at finishing things. I start off with the best of intentions, but the moment I hit a snag in the process, things can all go haywire. Perhaps you're the same. Perhaps you've got a a renovation going at home that's lasted for at least 10 years so far and There's no end at sight. Perhaps for you, finishing off that diet and reaching that goal weight is a real challenge. That's the case for many of us, isn't it? Despite the best of our intentions, often we're not good at finishing things. But praise God, unlike us, or at least unlike me, God finishes what he starts. God began his work in the Philippian believers. And as Paul says here, he's going to bring it on to its completion. I think the the greatest evidence we find of this is in Romans chapter 8 in the Scriptures. This is what Paul, the same Paul that wrote this epistle to the Philippians, writes to the church in Rome. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And now hear this. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Friends, God doesn't have any unfinished works. The God who calls us, is the God who justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies us. God finishes what he starts. And you know what, friends? This assurance shouldn't just fill us with confidence, although it certainly does that, doesn't it? But it should also empower us to serve. I was reading that during the early stages of the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, there weren't any 
safety devices put in place to protect the workers. And sadly, during that first stage of construction, 23 men fell to their death. But during the second part of the project, a, a large net that only cost $100,000 was put in place. And during that time, 10 men fell into the debt, uh, fell into the net, and praise God, they were saved. But what's most interesting, I think, is the fact that the workers were 25% more efficient. They got 25% more work done when they were assured of their safety. They worked harder and got more done. Assurance makes a world of difference, doesn't it? And my brothers and sisters, we have the ultimate assurance. We've just read it from God's word today. God's firm promise that he will finish his work in us. I wonder, with that assurance, with that safety net, with that promise in view, should that maybe free us up a little bit to take a few more risks for the gospel, both individually and here as a church? If we know that God will safely bring us through to glory, we were reminded of that again and again in 1 Peter, weren't we? Perhaps we need to be less concerned by our colleagues at work dismissing us when we share the gospel. Less concerned about what people think about us. Less concerned about the things that might direct our eyes away from Christ. Maybe our assurance means we can take a few more risks for Jesus. Even though he was far from them, isolated, under home arrest, Paul rejoiced that God would finish his work in the Philippians. And I think this leads neatly to our next source of joy, that they were together in spirit, even though not in presence. Did you notice when Max read earlier that even though Paul was separated from his dear friends in every way imaginable, he speaks with such intimacy of them because of the most important way in which they are connected in Christ. Paul spoke of this regularly in his letter to the churches. In his first letter to the Corinthian church, he says to them that even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. He said the same thing in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Now, the Apostle Paul wasn't magic. He, he couldn't be in two different places at once. No, it's because he recognized, friends, that our shared unity in the gospel isn't wholly foiled by an inability to gather together. And he didn't even have Zoom. He recognized that the Holy Spirit had united he and the Philippians together in Christ. And because of that connection, he remained inextricably connected to them although they might be physically apart, they were in fact together in the most significant way possible. As are we this morning and this evening, friends. What unites us together right now is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. What unites us together is the Holy Spirit, the deposit that is living in us. 
whilst we are separated and we mourn that. My brothers and sisters, we are together in the most significant way possible. So let me remind you, particularly as freedoms begin to emerge tomorrow, we are more united. We are more connected as the body of Christ, even when separate, than your local golf club is when they are together. We are united. We are together. We are connected in the most important way. In Jesus. And it's that unity that brings us to the fourth source of joy in our passage today. The privilege of prayer. There's, there's so much, friends, for us to learn from the Apostle Paul here about the way that we pray for each other. I, I wish that we had a couple of weeks to work through this line by line. But I think it's most important for us to notice right at the start that Paul remembers his friends in prayer. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you, Paul says. Every time. Every time, friends. Paul remembered his brothers and sisters in Philippi. His heart just leapt with thanksgiving to God. Just think about that. That's pretty inspiring, isn't it? How many of us can honestly say that when a fellow Christian, when our church family comes to mind, that our hearts just immediately soar with prayerful thanksgiving to God? So often when we think of others, even sadly our fellow believers, our minds turn, don't they, to criticism for their faults or ways that they have hurt us in the past. But Friends, please see, that wasn't the case for the Apostle Paul. His, his heart wasn't divided between praise and criticism. No, every time he thinks of them, he joyfully praises God. And friends, I want you to remember where he wrote these words. He wasn't in pleasant or comfortable surroundings. He was under house arrest in Rome. Having travelled far and wide, sharing the good news of the gospel. He now found himself in chains, alone, waiting to hear if he would live or die. His ministry seemed curtailed. If anyone had the right to vent to God, to express dissatisfaction with his circumstances in that moment, it was the Apostle Paul. But instead of falling into self-pity, his heart has been so transformed by Jesus that even in prison, his heart is overwhelmed with joyful thanksgiving to God. That gave me cause for a sober examination this week. I wonder, do I, do we exhibit the same thanksgiving in our prayer lives? Have we been so transformed by the wonder of the gospel, our unity in Jesus, that even in the midst of trial and difficulty, as light as this season has been, our hearts just overflow with thanksgiving and praise to God. What a model Paul is for us. Notice too that Paul's prayers weren't limited in scope. He prays, verse 4, for, for all of you, he prays for the entire church community 
even the irritating ones. We're going to see later on in this book that there was a bit of conflict in the Philippian church community. But Paul loved and prayed for them all, even the ones who were fighting. That's a challenge for us too, isn't it? I wonder, do we delight in coming before the Lord, interceding and giving thanks for all of our brothers and sisters, even the ones we find irritating? Do we rejoice in the good work that God is doing in their lives? Or do we find our hearts turn to past hurts and criticisms? James Montgomery Boyce said, I believe that 90% of the divisions between true believers would disappear entirely if Christians would learn to pray specifically and constantly for one another. And so, my brothers and sisters, can I lay a challenge before all of us this week? Whenever we're tempted to criticize a fellow believer this week, whether we're tempted to verbalize it or just keep it internally, can I urge you to commit in that moment, that very moment where your heart is tempted to turn to criticism, to pray for them. To give thanks to God for his work in that person's life. To give thanks to God that he has redeemed them in the name of Jesus. You might want to praise God for their great qualities and for their service to the Lord and pray that they might continue to grow closer and closer to him. My friends, relentless, prayerful thanksgiving and intercession is central to our unity as the body of Christ. It transforms us. As we give thanks to God and pray for each other, our divisions and petty differences just melt away. So much so that we experience the deep, affectionate longing that Paul writes of here in verse 8. God can testify, he says, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The, the NIV doesn't really do the original language justice here. I think the old King James Version does it much better. For God is my record, Paul says, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a vivid image, isn't it, of the deep, intense, right down inside you longing that Paul's talking about here. We're all missing and mourning being together right now, and there's no doubt about it. But let me ask you, friends, do you mourn deep down inside that we aren't together? Do you have that deep, enduring right inside you affection for other members of the body of Christ. That it's like a stab in your stomach when they fall into sin, when you see them going away, when you can't be together. That is the affection, the longing that we can have in Jesus. Paul's partnership with the Philippians certainly changed the way that he prayed, didn't it? But it also changed what he prayed. Take a look with me at verses 9 and 10. And this is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. 
so that you may be able to discern what is best. Let's just stop there for a moment. Paul's primary prayer here is that their love might abound more and more, both their love for God and for each other. But it's not soppy, sentimental love that Paul has in view here. You know how sometimes we talk about love being blind? You know, it's generally used with reference to kind of young, love-struck couples that are so infatuated with each other that they've lost sight of reality. That's, that's not the kind of love that Paul's talking about here. In fact, he directly cautions against it. He prays that they might have a love that abounds in knowledge and depth of insight. It might not be romantic, but what Paul is calling the Philippians and us to here is a sober love. A love that, guided by knowledge, leads to a righteous and discerning life. Friends, our love for God and each other must be guided by knowledge. It's a little bit like, say, a surgeon. A surgeon can be as loving as they want, can't they? But unless their work is guided by knowledge of the body, they're useless. You don't want to go to a loving but unknowledgeable surgeon, do you? But when a surgeon combines concern for others with knowledge of the human body, they're useful. Love must be guided by truth. And that, my friends, is a countercultural statement in our world today. We're called by our world to, to love, to embrace, to accept, almost turning our minds off. We're called to embrace without knowledge, without truth. But Paul says he no, love, true love, is guided by now, friends, I think as Christians, we need to acknowledge the fact that sometimes over the history of the church, the fact is we haven't done that well. Sometimes we've emphasized love and have neglected truth, and at other times we've expressed truth very well, but devoid of love. In fact, we see examples of that actually in the scriptures. In the book of Revelation, in Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, we see the Lord Jesus himself praising the Ephesian church for their doctrinal diligence, but rebuking them for their lack of love. And then later on in the very same chapter, he applauds the love of the church in Thyatira, but critiques their doctrinal compromise. And Paul is cautioning us here against both extremes. Our love must be based on knowledge. True love loves truth. It speaks truth lovingly. It hears truth humbly. And it defends truth tenaciously. And Paul prays that they might grow in their knowledge of God and its revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to have insight into God's word but not just to develop that knowledge for the sake of it, but then to know how to live in light of it. We see that there at the end of verse 10, so that you may be able to discern what is best. He wants them to have knowledge that 
applies biblical truth to situations and relationships to enable them to discern between true and false, but also between what is good and what is better, to be able to discern the things that matter, that are worthy of our time and our talents, and the things that don't. And there in the second half of verse 10, where I dropped off, and then verse 11, Paul lays out for us the purpose of this knowledgeable, discerning love. Let me pick up from where we left off there, halfway through verse 10, that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His desire is that knowledgeable, discerning love might so abound in their community that they might be found pure and blameless on the day when Christ returns. Paul lifts our eyes here to the ultimate outcome. That's the goal, that we might be so transformed into, our new, into a new people that we are fit to meet our Saviour when he returns. A people uncontaminated by this world and its folly and vices. So permeated by love and discernment that we exhibit the character, the attitude, and the actions of Christ. Growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Making decisions day by day that are informed and led by God's word. Enjoying loving relationships with others in the body of Christ. That we might be a bride fit to meet her groom. My brothers and sisters, what an example that the Apostle Paul lays before us here. In isolation, alone, separated from his dear brothers and sisters in Christ, but yet so filled with joy. Joy at the very thought of his partners in the gospel. Joy in the confidence that God will sustain them even in the hard times. And a heart moved to praise for his physically distant but yet united friends. What a model Paul is for us in our seasons of isolation. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you this day for each other. We thank you for the body of Christ here at NBC and more broadly throughout the world, that you have united us together through the precious once-for-all sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that in him, that in the gospel we are united, that we are together, that we are connected, even in our physical separation. Lord, we rejoice that we are not just united in the gospel, although that were enough, that would be enough, but that we are united in partnership in the gospel, making the Lord Jesus known day by day, week by week, both here in the Shoalhaven and as we've seen this morning throughout the world. What a joy it is, Lord, empowered by the Spirit to be able to roll up our sleeves 
and work together in true partnership. We thank you, Lord, that we can rest assured that you will finish the work that you began in us. What a source of joy, even in isolation, that is for us. That you have no unfinished work, that, that those you have called, you will justify and sanctify and ultimately glorify. What hope, what confidence we have, we thank you, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you might generate in us an intense, deep longing for each other. We pray that you might fan this love into flame, that division and petty squabbles might all be cast aside as we recognize our unity in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we await Christ's return, that our love, that our love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. That we might be able to discern in this world what is best, what is the best use of our time and our talents and our resources. That we might love based on truth, the truth of your word. And we pray this, Lord, not for our sake, but that we might be found pure and blameless on the day when Christ returns, filled this and every day with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus, that you, our God, might be glorified and praised in and through us. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of our King. Amen.